searching Your love was never far You made a way to get to me You were the whisper Leading me to your heart Forever I belong to you Does it get any better than that? Those are the baptisms of the last couple of weeks, and congratulations to all those who got baptized. Let me tell you, friends, that's why we are the church. We are the church to see people come to know Jesus Christ, to develop a walk with him and make a decision to um, let the whole world know. So it doesn't get any better than that. So um, that's really cool stuff. Welcome to First Christian Church today. Those of you here in the West, everybody in the East, I had a few moments with you just a few seconds ago. To everybody in Lovington and everybody else online, we're very glad you worship with us today. We're looking forward to, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you. My name is Wayne. I'm one of the pastors here, and I invite you to take some, take your Bible, please, and we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9. Some of you have been to Disney World. I imagine you have, and you know what it's like that, um, that, that, that they, they have these roller coasters, and I'm not really a roller coaster fan. I don't know about you, but they kind of freak me out, and uh, I've had to learn to just kind of, well, here's what happens. When we've gone as a family to situations like that, I'll sit on the bench outside while the family goes in. Anybody with me? Yeah? All right, so I sit on the bench, and I listen to all the screams of horror <laughs> coming from those torture machines of all the betty that's riding them, and I'll stand at the bottom, and see if we're dropping money, dropping money, I'll look. So... We, 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 I, I was quite content to watch the crowd pass by until it came time for Space Mountain. Now, here's my understanding. The Space Mountain was a roller coaster in the dark. I'm thinking, I can do this because it's in the dark and I won't know what to be afraid of. I mean, if it's in the dark, you don't know when the, when the twists and turns. Are, so there's no fear of, you know, there's no anticipation. So except the idea that I'm going to be on it. But I can do it. I can do it. It's the one that the, and so you're in the queue going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The, Leslie, the two kids, this is pre when they were pre-teenagers. And um, I'm there, I'm there, back and forth, back and forth. You know what I'm saying? Be the dad. Be the dad. You can do this. Be the dad. Don't be the grandpa. Be the dad. You can do this. You don't have to sit on the bench on this one. And then we went into the little tunnel that you go through. You're on the ride. And there in front of us is this car that has four seats. One, two, three, four. One in front of the other. 
be the dad, I step into the back one and sit down in the very last seat of this little car, this one, two, three, four. That's the last thing I remember. <laughs> Except for some sort of flashing lights now and then. I really don't recall the ride till we're getting out. My knees are shaking, I'm stepping out, and the family is laughing hysterically. <laughs> Apparently, there's somebody else who would have been sitting on the bench outside listening to me scream, scream up my lungs out, and they're laughing at what I was screaming out the whole ride. I guess we went up the incline and I was really quiet, but as soon as we, you know what I screamed out for like three and a half minutes? Jesus help me, Jesus help me, Jesus help me, Jesus help me. Over, which I'm glad I was yelling that and not something else that I shouldn't have been yelling. <laughs> What's with those people that make those sort of instruments of torture? What's with that? They're so meticulous, aren't they? Disney World and Disney, the Disney Corporation, anything they do, they're very, very precise, very meticulous from the rides to the movies to the music to the parks. Did you know that at Disney World, before they built where everybody is, uh, where you're walking around, there's a whole city underground? They have this engineered city under the park for what reason? Access for all their employees. So that if they want some Disney princess of some sort to appear over there, she doesn't have to walk through the crowd to get there. She is ferried underneath and pops up at the right moment. If there's an area of the park that needs cleaning, all the employees and all their carts go underground to that area. They pop up wherever some access point is. They clean up. All the stuff goes down underneath. You don't see trash being moved through the park. You don't see carts with, if there's an electrical problem, with ladders and electrician's tape and all that sort of stuff being driven through the park. It's there underground. Up they come. It's all engineered, pre-engineered. Before the park was built, they pre-engineered it for access. That's what I want to talk with you about today, engineered access. It is in the Bible. It has a significant impact upon your spirituality. And what we're doing is we're going to carry on with our wonder through the book of Hebrews. It's a letter that talks about all this pre-engineered access that at first you don't see it unless you're looking for it. So we are, um, we're going to Take a look at what some Hebrew Christians, in other words, some Jewish Christians, 30 to 35 years after Jesus was alive on, on earth. There, this is a letter written to them, and the book answers this question. How do Judaism and Christianity fit together? We remind you, if you want to get deeper in this, We've got study guides at the welcome desk. You can be part of our texting service and get it this afternoon at 4.30. And uh, just text the word first to cater to 24587. That, that study guide will come to you and you can use it this week. So, what's going on with all the engineering? Well, years before Jesus showed up on earth as God's son, there was a group of people, the nation called the nation of Israel. Precursor to the nation of Israel today. And the, the ancient Israelite nation was in a relationship with God. And part of that relationship involved a national decision on the part of Israel that said, we, compared to the other nations around us that are pantheistic, where they have multiple gods and they don't know who the gods are and they worship all these gods who they don't know, we're going to worship one God only. The God who we worship is the God of the universe, the God of the cosmos. He is Jehovah God and we will be a monotheistic nation. 
Now, at various points along the way, they messed that up, and we know some of those details, and there's back and forth, back and forth, but short run, long run, Judaism is a monotheistic religion, just the same as Christianity. But they had a problem in the early days of their history. They didn't own any land. They were, the ancient Israelites were nomadic people, and they wandered around, particularly as they were forming as a nation, in the Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula for about 40 years. The goal, God had told them, where t I'm going to take you to the promised land, the place of real dirt and real water and real territory that I'm promising to you. But you're going to have to wander, to, you're going to have to walk to get there. It took them 40 years to get there, moving from place to place. And it can be hard to find a place of worship when you're moving every few days. I mean, we, we have this place called worship, a place of worship, because it's built. It's a building. But if you're moving every day, you can't build a building. So God says, well, build a tent. Since you live in a tent, build a tent and make it a place of worship. The people called that the tabernacle. Now, years later, after they were established as a nation in, in the land of Israel, and they, they built the city called Jerusalem, they built a temple, a permanent structure. And there are characteristics that are very similar between the two, but it started out as a tent, a very elaborate tent for that, for that matter. Don't kid yourself. This wasn't some sort of pop-up tent for a few people to sp spend the night. It's large. You could think of it as a tent inside a tent with a wall of curtains around the outer edges. Very elaborate, very ornate. Lots of furniture in there. The Ark of the Covenant is in there. There are lampstands. There are... Um, Incense burners, there's all sorts of stuff in there. And um, they have to set it up when they came to a space and then take it down again. Now, this, this tabernacle, and later on the temple, had some interesting characteristics. And I want to point those out to you before we get to Hebrews 9. Because if you can know these characteristics beforehand, Hebrews 9 is going to make a lot more sense. So, some characteristics then, if you will, of this tabernacle, of this tent. First of all, the tabernacle was the center of the nation's life, of their national work story. For the wandering Jews, the tabernacle was always set up in the center of the camp. So when, they would when it was time to set up camp, 12 families, big tribes, right at 2 million people or more, gathered around, they set up camp, and in the very center of it is this tent. And, and for the most part, they'd say, okay, we're going to march, march, march. But then when they were going to come to a place where it was going to stay for a little while, they'd set up the tabernacle. Why would they stay for a while? Because, well, if you think if you had to pack up everything every day and put it on a cart and move to the next, with two million people doing it all together, it's going to be a mess at times. So they'd stop every now and then and they'd get the household chores done. They'd repair their own tents. They'd fix the carts. The animals could rest. The women could, I suppose, give birth, you could say, in some relative comfort, so to speak. The children would play, and when they would come to a time of rest, the tabernacle would be set up right in the center of all that activity. And God's house was the focal point then of their communal life. As a matter of fact, later on, probably 800, 900 years later, once you get to 600 BC, Ezekiel says this about what role the tabernacle and the temple, the permanent structure later on played. He said that he described the temple and the tabernacle as the center of all nations. He put it this way, the navel of the earth. At the very center, in other words, at the center of the cosmos, Ezekiel says, is this place where we worship God. Now, 
where they worshiped God, this tabernacle was God's dwelling place. And the Bible is full of stories of God's presence coming from heaven to earth and residing in the tabernacle, in the tent. Here's what happened. A, gl- a cloud of smoke would come out of the sky and it would go into the tent. And um, it would be, that tent is a little bit different than what we think of. You probably know this, right? Can you do it with me? Here's the church. Here's the, come on. Come on. Here's how it goes, right? Everybody here. Here we go. Here's the church, right? Now, which end do you want the steeple to be at? The front or the back end? The front end. Okay. Well, here's the, here's the steeple, right? Open the doors. There's all the people. That's how churches work, right? This was not how the tabernacle worked. As a matter of fact, um, you would have the people on the outside, and then you move forward, you move closer and closer, and you get to the very center, and there was God. The tabernacle was like people, 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 open the doors, and the only personality in the very center was God. As a matter of fact, in there, that's where God, so to speak, would dwell. The language is dwell. And, he, and God says this in Exodus 29. I'll consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, one of the pieces of furniture in there. I'll dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They'll know I am their Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. And what will I do? I will dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. God lives right in the tabernacle, right in the very center of the camp. But then from time to time, God would lead, leave, and in doing so, God would lead through the tabernacle. With God's presence there, um, they'd say, okay, this is where we're going to camp. But if God's presence left, if the smoke left, or it was during the day, if it was at night, there'd be a cloud of, a pillar of fire, that would leave and they would say, okay, it's time to move. And during the nation's wanderings, the tabernacle represented God's presence, even as a divine warrior. We'll come back to that. He would tell them, basically, now's the time to set up camp. Everybody be still for a few days. God's presence would be in the tabernacle. And then it would leave. The presence would leave. And that was like, basically, move them on out, move them on out, cowboys. You know, we're going to break camp. Why would they need that sort of object from God, that sort of lesson all the time? Well, Remember, we're a nation of more than 200 years, where the history that goes back to Great Britain to 1066, with all the laws and the ethos of how that all works out. But this is a fledgling, fledgling nation. They're, they're young. They don't have, at the beginning, they don't have, there's no bylaws, there's no constitution, there's no way of thinking about how do we make decisions about what to do as a nation. And here they are, they're headed into spaces where you know, the territory over there, they've some people over there that aren't going to like us and they're going to attack us. And so we need to know when to do We need to have some sort of way to guide all that. And so God would lead. And so it's not surprising that when the tabernacle was taken down, its furniture, the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstands and all that sort of stuff, you know where they'd put that when it was time to move? They'd put the objects of worship right out in front of the entire nation, saying, the place where we worship is leading the charge. Scripture puts it this way. The Ark of the Covenant went before them during those days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. You know, God, we're leaving. Rise up, Lord. And when you go out, Lord, may your enemies 
be scattered. May your foes flee before you. There's going to be some warfare. There's going to be people who don't like. There's going to be struggle. It's going to be hard. And so we have this picture that when they're about to move, that God is warring in front of them because they, they are choosing to worship him. But then when they came to a new camping spot, Moses again would say, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. We will, we will move when you move, God, and we will move within the context of worship. One final characteristic, and we'll finally get to Hebrews 9, okay? Access to the holiness decreased as you move toward the center. Again, look at the depiction of the outside walls on this slide, this tent-like structure that we see, that on the outside was where everyone was allowed. Then on the inside, only Jewish people were allowed, followed by where the priests could go. And then once a year, only the high priest would go in behind that, that, that uh, curtain you can see towards the left, the Holy of Holies, and he would go in there once a year. That's where God's presence really was. He would ask God for forgiveness for the nation's sins. It went from many, eventually down to one in God's presence. So why am I telling all of this? Because we're going to read this in Hebrews 9 today. But I suspect for most of us here today, we're not Jewish. And we don't have the Jewish culture and ethos understanding that the people of Hebrews did. The book of Hebrews was written to people who were Jewish and who had converted to Christianity, if you will. And so when, when this passage of Scripture we're about to read talks about the tabernacle and what it means, they have all that understanding that I've just brought to you. They have it all kind of intuitively within their head and within themselves. And so they understand things that we wouldn't understand otherwise. So read with me now, if you could, with the Jewish mindset of what the tabernacle is, beginning at verse 6. When everything had been arranged, when the engineering had taken place, if you will, when everything had been arranged like this, the tabernacle is set up, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, never without blood, when he offered for himself and the sins of the, he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing that by this the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. So he's saying there was something going on there that you, you Jewish people, you know about, that the high priest would go in there and offer atonement for sins. But that's the, that was just kind of the beginning of what's going to happen. This, he says, verse 9, is an illustration for the present time. So who's reading this? Jewish Christians, 30 years after Jesus' death. So this is anywhere we could say 13 to 1600 years after the tabernacle was first created. So they're, they're saying, he's saying to you people who are reading this 70 AD, this is an illustration for this time, for 70 AD, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of a new order. So the writer's saying, okay, in 70 AD, there used to be something that was in play. Now, a new thing has come into play. Who is, what is that new thing? It's Jesus. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. Hebrews is saying, Jesus was not created, he's God, and thus he is a tabernacle that is far better than the original tabernacle. The original tabernacle was simply 
a foreshadowing, an illustration. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? See, each week when we gather for worship, we usually have communion, right? And we say we're eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus, and we're saying that the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin. That's what's going on here that Jesus Christ is the new tabernacle. He's the new way in which we relate. Hebrews is saying the old tabernacle, the old tent is it's a, a, a tent at best. But now Jesus has arrived. He provides a better tabernacle, namely his own body. And in doing so, I'm going to point out to you how some of the characteristics of Jesus' nature are similar to what we see the characteristics of the previous, the first first tabernacle. For example, just as we said the first tabernacle was the center of the cosmos, so Christians, what do we see Jesus as? We see Jesus as the center of our lives. You know, we've discussed this before, that Christianity, we, we see Jesus as the centerpiece of all human history. We understand that God was engineering history from the beginning right down to the smallest details so that Jesus' earthly ministry would come to all people. And then that his life and ministry is the high point of human history and that everything prior to Jesus is a prelude to his arrival and any events after his arrival are simply, if you will, reflections of his eternal plan. So Jesus is the center of our lives just like the tabernacle was the center of the Israelites' lives. Additionally, just as the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God, So, Jesus, God, Emmanuel, dwells among us. You recall that when Jesus, uh, when Mary got pregnant with that little baby, what did the angel say to Joseph and Mary? What are you supposed to name him? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, Jesus dwelling among us. There's something fascinating in one of the Gospels that explains this in ways that you perhaps don't see at first. So we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We call them Gospels. They're basically biographies of Jesus' life. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in that they tell a lot of the same stories and it's almost like they're reading each other's work as they're writing it. But when you get to the Gospel of John, the biography of Jesus written by John, it's a different approach. It's still about Jesus, and there's lots of stories about Jesus, but uh, as compared to the other three, John uses the stories to really try and develop some deep theology about Jesus' nature. And in John chapter 1, he makes this statement that the word, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's that dwelling business. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You don't see it in English, but in in Greek there, where it says, made his dwelling. Do you know how you could say that? If we were to translate a little bit different way, you could take a verbal form of the word tabernacle, and you could say that the word, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. So we get this sense that they are very much connecting, John is connecting the old story 
of what, how things were with the tabernacle and that, that God was dwelling in the tabernacle, John is very clearly, in Greek, making it very clear that Jesus is the new tabernacle. So we say then that God lives among us through Jesus Christ. And just as God lived among the people in the tabernacle and would lead them and led them to the promised land, so to us, we could say this, Jesus also leads us today through the Holy Spirit's presence. Um, he, Jesus gifted us the Holy Spirit. Perhaps I could explain it this way. A few days before Jesus was to die and was executed, he's got his disciples around him and he says, hey, hey guys, I want you to know there's some bad days coming. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, it's gonna be really bad. What do you mean? Well, I'm going to die, and you're going to be really dis dismayed. But don't worry, I'll rise again. And oh, that'll be, be good, Jesus. But then I'm going to go to heaven. That's not good, Jesus. And he got this emotional stuff up and down on the part of the disciples, and he says, you know what? Don't worry about this. Don't sweat the small stuff. Now, it's not small stuff, but it's like, it's going to be all right because he says, when I go to heaven, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So right now, you're worried about if you can stand beside me, right beside me as God, so that if something happens, I'll be there to intervene. But if I go to heaven, I'll send the Holy Spirit so that no matter where you are, the Spirit of God is not, is not stuck in a body, but the Spirit of God can be wherever you are. And so exactly in the same way that the Spirit of God led the people through the, through the tabernacles, so, Christian, Jesus Christ has given you the Spirit of God, and God's leadership is there, ready, waiting, and leading as you listen. It's all been engineered. It's all been part of how God put this whole plan together. And so let me show you one more way in which um, Jesus is similar, and if you will, that the, the tabernacle was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Uh, remember we read that the high priest would go into the tabernacle once, into the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. He'd go in there once a year. But that has changed because when Jesus died, the curtain that was in front of the Holy of Holies, it literally tore in half. And so now through Jesus Christ, everyone has access to God's presence because it's there for all to see. Here's what I mean. Prior to Jesus, there were a declining number of people. We said Lots of people on the outside, less and less people to where you get to one guy in the middle. Well, that's not the way it is anymore. Here's how the Israelites interpreted that business of many, many, many to, down to one. If you weren't Jewish, you were on the outside. And then women weren't allowed in, inside, and then only the priests, and then eventually one fellow. As a matter of fact, there was a, a line in the tabernacle, and it, it, it was... They put it there and say, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, can't cross that line. And it's a capital offense for you to cross that line. When they got to the temple, they actually built a wall. They said, cross this dividing wall, you're dead. But look at what happened. We read the Apostle Paul saying that Jesus, who is our peace, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside the law with its commands and regulations. What's going on here? How only one person can go from the outside all the way to the in. Now the in is the inside, the presence of God, the dwelling place of God is available for all people. It's a full access pass, if you will, engineered for you. 
God planned for generations before it arrived. God planned for the coming of Jesus Christ for generations before he arrived. Do you know what God planned for you to know of this story before you arrived? I'll explain it this way. Um, my birthday was a few weeks ago. I got some really cool gifts. They were all a surprise. Um, I got a book of bad dad jokes. You might hear some of those in the days ahead. One was a stunner, though. Leslie bought us tickets to go see a St. Louis Cardinals game. Now, we usually go to one or two games a year, and um, when we go, we usually sit in the nosebleed section. As a matter of fact, Ben and I went to a game together last year, and we sat on the very last row of the bleachers. I mean, we're looking down at the parking lot. There was a chain-link fence right behind us. You could lean against the chain-link fence. It was kind of nice because there was a lovely breeze coming through there in the middle of summer. But we were so far from the field, the players were about that big. It was still fun, but these tickets that Leslie's got this time, <laughs> it's going to be different. We're going to be down right on the field. And additionally, you know what these all-access tickets are, have given us? Food. <laughs> you know, in the past, I've had to stand in line and pay about $18.50 to get some sort of dry bun with a hamburger on it and a warm Diet Coke. Um, as a matter of fact, the last time I went to Wrigley Field to see the Cubs, look what came my way. No, I'm just joking. That's in New York. I just wanted to make you Cubbies fans think this was in your field. <laughs> no, what we're going to have this time, it's a full access ticket. That means you get to go to the buffet. And they're going to have food there that I'm not normally allowed to eat. But I'm going to eat it all. I'm going to eat it all. The whole shebang, the whole kit and caboodle, it's available. It's full access, even though I'm not a season ticket holder, and even though I don't have a family member who plays on the team. Here's what I do have. It's all mine because a member of my family paid for that full access. Do you know Scripture calls Jesus Christ our brother? You had a family member make a payment to give you full access to the presence of God. Jesus died cutting down the wall, the, burying, the burial wall between us and God. He tore the veil in half. And you get to meet with God. As a matter of fact, each week we remember his death. We have access, we know we have access to the full buffet of God's blessings. We have complete forgiveness. We have divine grace. We have the Spirit leading us. We have God's daily presence. And you know what also? We have God warring in front of us. We have an eternal future in heaven. Why is all that coming our way? Because Jesus Christ is a better tabernacle. It was engineered as such. I mean, years, years ago down in Disney World, they said, we want to be able to pop up at the right moment and do what's needed to be done. It was all engineered and you didn't even know it. Jesus Christ's plan for your life to know him was engineered long before you knew it. And you have access to what he did for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, I marvel to think about how from the moment of Genesis 3 and sin being introduced into humanity's history, that you had a plan from then till now 
that plan involved the people of Israel, involved Abraham and that covenant and all that stuff. And then you get all the way to Jesus and human history shifts dramatically at that moment. We have access to you. Not through anything we've done, but through the grace gift that you've given us of Jesus Christ. And so as we eat and drink today, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. The implications of that death, the access to you, the fact that I can be standing here today and pray to you in your presence and not fall down on my face dead before the awesomeness of God Almighty. God, what a great gift you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.